In the ancient 590s BC, the prophet Jeremiah had a confrontation outside of Solomon's temple with a false prophet named Hananiah. In this week's episode, we'll discuss the dozens of lessons we can learn from this ancient showdown. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Welcome back to Gospel Doctrine for episode number 42 in the Old Testament, I Will Write It in Their Hearts. Today we're discussing Jeremiah chapters 16, 23, 29, and 31. And in typical fashion, I am adding my own chapter, which is chapter 28. So, as we as we discussed last week, uh, Jeremiah is not a book that is chronologically set, so the chapters don't have any particular order, which is why I kind of like the fact that we're skipping around a little bit the the LDS lesson manual dictates a number of chapters that they thought we should study and I think this is they're surprisingly on point and they're also in in a really good order for us to talk about but I would make one change which is to add chapter 28 to the list so we'll just take them in order and as we discuss them in order they each you'll you'll discover that each one builds on the last and uh, this is probably one of the most fascinating lessons that I've prepared, so I'm, I'm looking forward to it. First off, chapter 16 of Jeremiah. You can see right at the beginning that uh, we learn a lot about Jeremiah's life and the type of life he must have led in ancient Israel because God tells Jeremiah, do not take a wife. I, I referred to this last week, but I, I didn't quite realize that we weren't studying that chapter yet. So, uh, in verse 2 of chapter 16, thou shalt not take thee a wife, neither shalt thou have shalt thou have sons or daughters in this place. And God goes on to instruct Jeremiah in all of the ways in which he has to hold himself apart from the people among whom he lives. And the the reason that God gives Jeremiah for not having a wife is that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. So he's not saying uh, there's anything wrong with, there's anything particularly great about celibacy inside of marriage. He's just saying, this is not the time for marrying and being given in marriage, and it's not the time for mourning. And this is an interesting symbolism. If you read a little farther in chapter 16, God tells Jeremiah, he says, don't go to wakes. I guess the equivalent would be a wake. Um, But there were pagan rituals that happened around feasts that happened around the time of people's deaths. And God is telling Jeremiah, don't go celebrate this in the pagan way or... um, This is actually a reconstruction, a uh, historian's reconstruction of of what the culture might have been like. So I'm, I'm not 100% sure, no one's 100% sure what God, what the instruction exactly means that Jeremiah is to abstain from, but he's not to go and laugh with people who are, who are celebrating a feast around the time of a death. And so people have assumed that this means a pagan death feast, which was common in uh, Near Eastern culture at that time. The point is, Jeremiah not by not having children, by not marrying, by not engaging in mourning for the dead, he was displaying, he, w- he was using his life as an object lesson to display the fact that Jerusalem's days not only were numbered, but God told him, within your lifetime, you will see all these things with your own eyes. There, what, 
Jeremiah could not have spoken loudly enough to get this message across more strongly. The fact that he was unwilling to marry, he was, he was basically backing up the fact that he really believed God's word. So fascinating chapter here in number 16. A couple of things to mention about it. In verses 16 and 17, oh, let's see. Let's go back a little farther. Verse 14. So we're still in Jeremiah 16. Verse 14, Therefore the, the days come, saith the Lord, that it shall no more be said, The Lord liveth, or Yahweh liveth, that brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. But the Lord liveth that brought up the children of Israel from the land of the north, from all the lands whither he had driven them, and I will bring them again unto their land that I gave unto their fathers. So God is saying, right now people talk about Yahweh. They talk about me as the God that performed the miracles of the Exodus. But in some future day, the Exodus will be forgotten. So great will be the work that I will perform in gathering Israel again. So God is saying two things. First of all, Israel is going to be so scattered that it will take a miracle of the ages to bring it back together again, which in and of itself is really scary. Even though this doesn't sound like a scary verse, it's a promise of future glory. But the fact that God has to perform a miracle even greater than the Exodus to gather Israel shows you how widespread their scattering will be what we know today as the diaspora or the, the scattering of Jews throughout every country, every nation. And then uh, secondly, that God will perform that miracle. So we learn two things from this passage. Um, then the passage continues, and this is, this is a verse that I believe is commonly, or two verses that I believe are commonly misinterpreted by Latter-day Saints. Behold, I will send for many fishers, saith the Lord, and they shall fish them. And after I will send for many hunters, and they shall hunt them from every mountain and from every hill and out of the holes in the rocks. Now, we commonly interpret this as a verse about missionary work. Uh, but let's, it's important, I think, to, obviously, God will perform missionary work, and missionary work is one manifestation of this gathering, this miracle that God will perform. Nevertheless, that doesn't mean we get to, we get to dictate on scriptures what they mean. We have to take them at their we have to take the text for what it is. And in the Hebrew text, there are what are, what are known as paragraph breaks. You can see it in the, in the LDS scriptures, there's a little paragraph sign, which kind of means that it's a new idea from what was coming before. It might be an indication of uh, the end of a quotation. We don't, the, the paragraph break doesn't exactly it's not an exact analog for what a paragraph break would be in English. However, there's a paragraph break before this, which would tend to separate it from the text that, verse 16 from the, the verses that were coming before, meaning it may or may not, when, when God says, I will send for many fishers and they shall fish them, um, he may not be talking about the gathering. He may be talking about something else entirely. Let's, let's read on and we'll see. So we just read verse 16. Here's verse 17. For mine eyes are upon all their ways, they are not hid from my face, neither is their iniquity hid from mine eyes. So the fact that God says for, which is short for therefore, means that the verse 17 follows from verse 16. I'm going to hunt them, I'm going to fish them, I'm going to send these hunters and fishers to find the Israelites because I'm watching all of their iniquities. To me, it seems more likely that this that verse 16 is talking about 
all of the, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, in other words, the agents of destruction that God has ordained will come upon Israel, then he is talking about the agents of gathering. Something to think about, not crucial. Uh, nevertheless, we don't have the right as Latter-day Saints to say all, all these scriptures are, are uniquely applying to us and our work. We have to take the text for what it is. Uh, and this may be, I may be wrong about this, and verse 16 may be um, 100% applying to missionary work. Uh, that's not the way that I read it. Okay, so that's chapter 16. It's kind of, uh, uh, number one, it's an explanation of the kind of life that Jeremiah is living. What his life must have been, we can, we can guess what his life must have been like. Very, very lonely. Number one, because he's separating himself from all of his people. And number two, God has forbidden him from having anyone to share it with. And then he talks about the coming day, how the his prophecy, chapter 16, is a wonderful restatement of his prophecy of the coming exile and then the coming gathering. So this is what Jeremiah is all about. He's separating himself from Israel, and then he prophesies about the exile and the gathering. Now we'll skip forward to chapter 23, and this sets us up for what is going to be the heart of our lesson. God is talking about these pastors and rulers and prophets whose job it was to oversee the spiritual health of Judah and the, the children of Israel. And God is saying, um, in verse 2, for example, God says, Therefore, thus saith the Lord against the pastors that feed my people, ye have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not visited them. Behold, I will visit upon you the evil of your doings, saith the Lord. So God goes uh, throughout this chapter and talks about the damage that a false prophet does. When a prophet says uh, of, of people that are in sin, when he says you're not sinning, or of people who have terrible judgments that are going to come upon them, and that prophet and somebody, somebody claiming to be a prophet says everything's going to be fine. These are, this is God, this this chapter is God telling them how serious this is. And the short version of how serious it is, is that God says, you carry the weight. You shepherds, you pastors, you prophets, you carry the weight of the people's sins. All of them are upon you. Um, it's, it's very commonly expressed in the Book of Mormon as the blood, your blood will not stain my garments. So therefore, these prophets are expressing the idea, I have to tell you, I don't want to talk to you about the terrible things you're doing. But if I don't, then your sins will come upon me. And this is Jeremiah describing why that's so important. So every time you've read that in the Book of Mormon, these, it seems very important to the prophets that they say, you cannot have a claim on me at the last day. This is the idea they're talking about. God is, t God is saying, in my heavenly calculations, prophets have it a lot worse than most people because if they don't do their work perfectly, if they don't do it exactly right, then what they might have done will the, the sins that they might have prevented in other people will all come back upon them. It's a huge burden to carry. And a lot of, and a lot of people in Jeremiah's time were speaking in the name of God, in the name of Yahweh, and saying, this is, thus saith the Lord, thus saith Yahweh, and then say whatever it was that they made up. And God, through Jeremiah, tells Israel, just tells Judah, just exactly how terrible a sin that is. And if you want to read more about these wicked prophets, just start in verse 10 and go through verse 17. 
the in, in verse 14 is a perfect example. I have seen also in the prophets of Jerusalem an horrible thing. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They strengthen also the hands of evildoers, that none doth return from his wickedness. They are all of them unto me as Sodom, and the inhabitants thereof as Gomorrah. So this is, this is how terrible it is to be a, one of these false prophets. Now, if we skip back to verse 5, we're going to see a lesson that's hiding right in the middle of this chapter, which is a prophecy of the coming messianic king, this Davidic king, the man who will fulfill the Davidic covenant that we've been talking about since we studied uh, Second Kings, right? This, this figure that God in Isaiah calls my servant, somebody who will restore the Jews to their former glory and bring peace upon the earth. And, and the Jews are thinking this is imminent, right? They're thinking that this Davidic king might come any day. The, because God doesn't give a timeline about the way this happens. And looking back, we can see, or we can, we can make a, a judgment that this was naive of them to think it was coming right away. But there's really no reason why it would have been naive. This was a comment that was, or a promise that was commonly made. So we'll, I'll read verse five to you. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch. Now we'll talk about the word branch in just a second. But the surface idea is that the trunk is the the ancestor and the branch is the descendant, right? So this is going to be one of the kings that's descended from David's line. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper, and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. In his days Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely. And this is his name, whereby he shall be called the Lord, our righteousness. So this is one of the first times when Yahweh himself, because this, the word the Lord, when you see it in all caps like it is in this verse, uh, that word is generally the King James translator's attempt to avoid taking the name of God in vain. So they don't translate it Jehovah as it, as it is in one or two places in the King James Version, or Yahweh as most Jews and Hebrew scholars say it today. They just leave it as the Lord and put it in all caps or in small caps. But this is the first time when we see this Davidic king, the Messiah, the anointed one, also called Yahweh, the, where we find the idea that they're one and the same. But an idea that's not new is that this Davidic king is going to reign in peace and prosperity and bring justice and peace to the people of Judah. And, and they would have extended that to include their, their own self-rule, their own determination of their, of their country's freedom. Now in verse 30, Jeremiah says something that's, that might remind you of another passage that's very similar to this chapter. And that's a passage we're going to study. I can't remember if it's next week or the week after. Um, Verse 30 of chapter 23. Therefore, behold, I am against the prophets, saith the Lord, that steal my words, every one from his neighbor. Now, this is language very reminiscent of that passage in Ezekiel, where Ezekiel's talking about the shepherds that were supposed to watch over the flock. They were supposed to be on a wall, and they were on a, they were on a watchtower, and if an enemy, an enemy comes, then they, it was their job to raise the alarm and it was their job to give, lay, lay down their lives for the sheep, etc., etc. And when we talk about the shepherd's lesson of Ezekiel, then we'll discuss this idea in more detail. But uh, in case I forget to, do, to, to hearken back to chapter 23 of Jeremiah, right now I'm pointing it out. These are two very parallel chapters, uh, Jeremiah 23 as well. And, and 
God says in that chapter of Ezekiel, he says, I am against the shepherds. And here he says, I am against the prophets. So God is saying explicitly, they don't speak for me. They failed in whatever task that they had. If they had a calling at all from me, they've done it poorly. And a lot of them never had a call from me. So I'm against them. Now, if you've been listening a while, you may remember our lesson on the Ten Commandments. And in that lesson, we talked about, I made an, uh, a special point to talk about uh, the, the commandment to not take God's name in vain. And th- at that time, I, I showed you that the, the word take and carry are the same. And so this idea of taking God's name in vain, if, if you remember, for those of you who, who also haven't been listening that long, the only commandment that is unforgivable is not taking the Lord's name in vain, which seems very odd, right? We lead, we're, our assumption on what it means to take God's name in vain is to say the word God in any sort of profane context. And that doesn't seem to be the most serious. I mean, adultery or murder would seem to be much more serious than taking God's name in vain. So what can it mean? And one idea, and I got this from Dennis Prager's book on the Exodus, One idea about why it is that taking the Lord's name in vain is so serious is that when you carry God's name in vain, you kill the faith of other people. So you've done more than kill their body. You've actually separated them from God. You've caused not only a physical death, but a spiritual death, which may may end up being worse. And from God's perspective is definitely worse. So in verse 40, we have a language that's reminiscent of that idea, which is, I will bring an everlasting reproach upon you and a perpetual shame, which shall not be forgotten. So this is language which calls to mind the penalty for taking the name of God in vain. And this is a support of the idea that when you carry the name of God in vain, it's an unforgivable sin because you have put other people in the path of sin and you're not in control of their repentance. You don't know if they'll ever find their way back. And God is saying, when you take it upon yourself to speak in my name and lead people astray, not only have you taken upon yourselves the sins that you caused them to commit, but it can't be forgiven. Very, very powerful stuff. So that's chapter 23. Now we, we skip to our bonus chapter, which is chapter 28. And this is uh, kind of like a showdown between Jeremiah and one of these false prophets. So there's a prophet, Hananiah, who's been standing outside the temple in Jerusalem And he's telling everyone, hey, listen, in two years, in two years' time, Nebuchadnezzar, the uh, Babylonian emperor, he's going to realize that God is real and that Judah is worthy of blessings and he's going to forgive us and people are going to return. And so if you remember, uh, Israelites, Judahites have been carried away captive uh, over the course of several decades now, or at least a couple of decades. And things are getting progressively worse and every successive king gets the idea that they need to rebel against whoever the overlords are, be it Assyria or Egypt or finally the Babylonians. But Judah is just not as powerful a kingdom it once was and it can't assert its independence without great danger, without help, without some other empire standing behind them. And they always trust the wrong people. And this is Hananiah saying, everything's going to be fine. No one's going to destroy us. Nebuchadnezzar is going to see the error of his ways. Look, we're in the real, we're in Jerusalem, the holiest city on earth. And uh, you remember last week we talked about chapter 7, where the Jews would say, the temple, the temple of Yahweh. Why would God destroy the temple of Yahweh? Well, 
Um, we'll talk a little bit about God's response to that line of reasoning in just a moment. So that was Hananiah's prophecy. And Jeremiah comes in and he says, okay, uh, Hananiah, well, that's an interesting thing you've just said because it goes, it goes exactly against what I said. I said that we're going to be destroyed if we don't repent. Babylonians, Babylon is going to sweep in here and carry everyone away captive. And you're saying that, that we don't need to worry about that and that will never happen. And in two years, everything will be fine which is really interesting. I, I, I don't know, it's hard to say what was in Hananiah's mind, but we can only guess that uh, it was an easy prediction to make. He figured he'd live it up for two years, and then when the, when the time came, if it didn't happen, there's always a chance that might be what happened, and then he'd, be, uh, he'd get credit for it. And if it didn't happen, then uh, he'd find some way to explain it. So he's probably just a huckster. He's a charlatan. And Jeremiah says, Hananiah... Here's how, and to everyone listening, here's how you know a real prophet. When they make a prediction about the future, then it comes true. And uh, so one of the questions, if I were teaching this lesson live, one of the questions I would ask right now would be, how do you tell the difference? If you were an ancient Israelite, how would you tell the difference between Jeremiah and Hananiah, which one is actually representing Yahweh? Really, really difficult, because remember, these Israelites would not have had, first. the first thing that came into my mind was, well, which one of them is speaking more in accordance with, for example, Moses, somebody that the Jews recognize as an authority on what the word of God actually was. So who's speaking more in accordance with the revealed word of God as they knew it up to that point? Well, guess what? The Jews didn't have that option. They didn't all possess the scriptures. Scriptures and and thoughts about God and lessons about their own history and their spiritual past were revealed to them by oral teachings. And there was no hierarchy within the church that said, you're a prophet, you're not. If you're a prophet, and you know, then there's a council, there's a quorum of priesthood holders, etc. Didn't exist. So prophets, they basically called themselves. And we'll discuss how this happened. Uh, I shouldn't say called themselves, but... Um, they could call themselves if they, if they had a desire to misrepresent God. And God would just call them, and there was no structure, there was no church, per se, in which they would be called, in which people could recognize from outside. So, easier said than done to tell the difference between Jeremiah and Hananiah. And which one would you prefer to listen to? If you're an Israelite, you're thinking... Uh, one of them is telling me I've got to uproot my lifestyle, and the other one is telling me things are fine. Obviously, Hananiah is the real prophet. It, your, your own bias, your own confirmation bias would tell you that Hananiah is the prophet and Jeremiah is the pretender. And look at Jeremiah. He must have been a humble, humbly dressed guy, right? Because he was often put in prison. He can't have been very well off. Wealthy people abhorred him. So he probably dressed in rags. And Hananiah, on the other hand, might have been well rewarded for telling people what they wanted to hear. Just one more consideration. So, uh, obviously, none of you can respond to that question, how would you tell the difference? But it's worth thinking about that they didn't, it was not easy for people listening and watching this showdown to know. Jeremiah made a prediction, uh, and he said, Hananiah, before the year's out, because you've spoken in God's name, and what you have said has not been God's will, before the year is out, you yourself will die, and then we'll see what comes of your words. And then Jeremiah's words were fulfilled. So you wouldn't have been able to tell, well, I shouldn't say you wouldn't have been able to tell. You wouldn't have been able to 
to know whose pr predictions were going to come true on that day that they were made. But within a few months, you would have been able to tell very easily if you were paying attention and if you were willing to remember and write down what it was said and then go back and say, oh, yeah, I, I remember these two guys argued about this and one of them made this prediction and the other one made this prediction. Sounds like Jeremiah's is the one that came true. So the first answer to the question is, if a prophet really does come from God, then if there are any predictions in what he says, then they'll come true. Now, this is not an, always an easy one to follow because prophets don't, it's not very often that a prophet does what Jeremiah did, which is say, within one year, this will happen. Or even do what Hananiah said, which is in, in two years, this major world event will come to pass. Uh, a lot of times what the predictions that prophets make are more generally along the lines of this consequence, this penalty is the consequence of this sin. And therefore, when it comes true, you don't always hearken back to the words of the prophet. You just think, yeah, I, I, I kind of always knew that this penalty was the consequence of this sin. And the prophet was annoying me when he said that, so I didn't listen, etc. And this, that's what the Jews were engaging in constantly. So the prophet's word comes true. Yes, that's one way to tell. And it can be very helpful in certain, but it has limited application. So let's talk about some other ways where you would know the difference. Uh, the, the, the main one that occurred to me is one of the prophets, one of the two men in this case, is encouraging people to put off the natural man, and the other one is not. Uh, I would guess that no prophet would ever say, you know what, you're fine. Just go ahead and be natural, just engage the natural man and reinforce, reward your natural in instincts to commit sin, etc. Go ahead and rest easy tonight because you're going to be just fine in your sins, right? And maybe that's not what Hananiah was saying, but if you boiled it down, that is what he was encouraging the, uh, the people of Judah to do. He was saying, don't worry about putting off the natural man. Rest easy tonight. And Jeremiah was saying, you all need to repent in utter humility or you're going to be destroyed. Obviously, two very different admonitions, and only one of them is a call to put off the natural man. And the third, the third way is sort of similar to that, which is the Holy Ghost is going to tell you which one is a real prophet. The problem with that is it requires real humility, as does the second as does the second way, right? You have to be really humble to listen to somebody who's telling you to put off the natural man or woman and decide, I want to follow that person. The person who's telling me what I don't want to hear. It requires genuine humility to say, well, I am going to upend my life on the off chance, the unconfirmed chance that this person is actually a prophet. And this other guy who's telling me what I want to hear, I'm not going to listen to him. Think about the kind of humility that would take because you really don't have a guarantee. You, don't, you can't go look it up and say, yeah, you know, he matches what the scriptures say. I'm, I've prayed about it. They didn't have all this personal revelation doctrine. So it would have been very difficult. So the Jews, and that's why God is saying it's so terrible. It's so serious a sin for these false prophets to preach is because the, is, the Judahites, the Israelites, as I call them, would not have been anywhere near as sophisticated as people are today in figuring out how to reconcile the words of a prophet with the, with the word of God that they already had. So the final way would be a recourse to the scriptures. And there were people that had this resource. There were people that could have made this appeal to the scriptures. And you and I are going to do just that. So 
Um, we just finished with chapter 23, and I'm going to reference now one verse from that chapter, verse 18. Now, biblical scholars have identified common elements in the narratives where uh, ancient biblical prophets got their calling, as we would call it today. And this, this episode is referred to as a theophany, T-H-E-O-P-H-A-N-Y. So a theophany is man standing in the presence of God. And there isn't necessarily teachings about it very commonly expressed in the Bible. And in Jeremiah, we have one of the few examples. So in verse 18 of chapter 23, Jeremiah says, Who has stood in the counsel of the Lord and hath perceived and heard his word? Who hath marked his word and heard it? This is a little poem about Jeremiah comparing his own experience seeing the word of God. You remember last week we talked about God appeared to Jeremiah and placed his word in Jeremiah's mouth. And ever after, throughout Jeremiah's life, whenever he wasn't saying the will of the Lord, the word of the Lord, he felt it like a burning fire within him. And you'll also maybe remember on on our first lesson of Isaiah, we talked about chapter 6. So Isaiah also had this theophany where he is called, he is summoned to the temple of God, and he's standing there before God and all these angels, these seraphim surrounding him. And they're all saying how holy God is. And Isaiah recognizes his own unholiness. We talked about, if you remember, we talked about the idea of purity and holiness and impurity. So ritual purity versus moral purity. And the fact that it was usually impurity that was spread. And God taught Isaiah in that experience that he could also spread his own purity, his own holiness, if he chose and if people humbled themselves. Well, that was Isaiah's theophany. We'll talk next week about Ezekiel's theophany in Ezekiel chapter 1. And you will certainly remember in from 1 Nephi chapter 1, uh, Lehi having dreams, and then he sees a vision of God on his throne surrounded by his angels. So this is a common experience that God is in a council. Now, in uh, Jeremiah 23, 18, there is, it's an unfortunate, let's say, confusion. I'm not sure it's a confusion, but the word in the King James Version is translated as counsel with an S-E-L, counsel meaning advice. But uh, this same word more commonly means an assembly or a council, C-I-L. So it not only are they homophones in English, but the same word in Hebrew can be translated in either way. The more accurate meaning is probably council C-I-L. So what Jeremiah was saying was, who hath stood in the council of the Lord? In other words, in the assembly of God. So Jeremiah is saying to Hananiah, to all, well, in, in chapter 20, 23, he's talking to any false prophet. But Jeremiah would say to Hananiah, have you had a theophany? Have you stood in the presence of God in his throne, seen him on his throne, surrounded by his holy angels? And they're all saying how holy he is. When seen from that perspective, Jeremiah is telling us how we can check the credentials of a prophet, or more accurately, how one prophet can check the credentials of a false prophet, which is to say, have you had an experience where God actually called you to speak for him? Because that is what a prophet does, is he's the voice of God. And I don't think you have. I don't think you've stood in the council of Yahweh, in the presence of Yahweh, and actually had him give you his word. So you and I don't necessarily know when a prophet has had that experience, but Jeremiah is saying, God knows, and I know, and you haven't. So this is one way to tell if God actually called him. 
Now, I haven't done this in a while, but I want to talk in this episode about some of the resources that I've been finding as sources uh, to use in preparing my podcast. So this week I found a very fascinating article called How Could Jerusalem, That Great City, Be Destroyed? And if you recognize that quote, it's from the Book of Mormon. It's from, I believe, chapter First uh, Nephi chapter 17. I'll find the scripture written here in just a minute. But uh, So how could Jerusalem, that great city, be destroyed? This is what Laman and Lemuel said to Nephi and to Lehi when they're saying, we've got to get out of here. They're already months departed into the wilderness. And finally, Laman and Lemuel let everyone know their real feelings, which is, how could Jerusalem, that great city, be destroyed? Now, as a young person reading the Book of Mormon, I never recognized how rational that objection actually was. Laman and Lemuel had the same objection that everyone in Jerusalem had. So let's talk about where it comes from. And this is the, these are six points that the authors of this article make. And uh, I, was, I was pleasantly surprised to see one of the authors is David Seeley, who was, one of, who was my Isaiah professor when I studied years ago in the BYU Jerusalem Center. And um, I was just fortunate enough to think, oh yeah, I want to sign up for Isaiah while I'm here living in the Holy Land. And we, there were maybe 180, 160 to 180 students in the Jerusalem Center. And by the end uh, of the semester, every student who hadn't signed up, there were maybe 20 or 25 of us in that Isaiah class, everyone who hadn't signed up was really jealous because he was also our Near Eastern Studies professor. And he was so knowledgeable about this, not only uh, history, but the scriptures. I think he read four dead languages or something like that. And he was uh, on call with the Hebrew University helping with the Dead Sea Scrolls, very knowledgeable guy, but also uh, super knowledgeable about Latter-day Saint theology as well and Book of Mormon theology. So this is a wonderful article. And then Fred Woods is the other author. And you may remember that uh, I referenced an article a few weeks ago when we talked about Elisha and his bald head taking over the the calling of Elijah. Um, and that article that we referenced at that time, I believe this was the same author. So uh, very profound points they make here, in the, and they, they bring up six reasons why the Jews living in Jerusalem at the time of Lehi and at the time of Jeremiah would not have believed that Jerusalem could be destroyed. So let's go through them one by one. Number one, they had the Jews had a historical tradition. So uh, they believed as they should have, that Yahweh was the true God. But they had come to associate Jerusalem with Yahweh himself, meaning because Jerusalem is where God's temple is, because Jerusalem is where David was when he received the Davidic covenant, if if God is real, Jerusalem will be safe. And a few minutes ago, I referred to chapter 7 of Jeremiah where the Jews were saying, a temple, we have the temple of Yahweh. And we were going to talk about uh, what Jeremiah said to rebut that particular fallacy, which is Jeremiah said, well, if you think the temple of God is such a protection, then why don't you travel 20 miles away and go look at Shiloh? Now, Shiloh was where Eli uh, watched over the Ark of the Covenant when Samuel the prophet was called and lived there, right? This is where before the days of David, before he conquered Jerusalem from the Jebusites, this was the center of Judaism. 
And Jeremiah says at the, on this occasion, he says, if you think that having the, the temple or the Ark of the Covenant in, in a place is enough protection, then just go look at Shiloh, take a little trip. But I think you all know what happened. It's a wasteland now. It's been totally destroyed. So God doesn't always leave these places under his protection, especially when the people are wicked. And that's the case right now. So number one, they had this historical tradition. And number two, the Jews were, and it's in line with number one, they were misunderstanding all the covenants that had been made. So God had first of all promised to Abraham, through thy seed will all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. And he promised to Moses that you will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And he promised to David, he'd said, I will, there will never fault you a man on the throne of Israel, and I will raise up one after you of your seed who will be this Messiah. And so the Jews are thinking, uh, well, we know the covenants of God, and God has promised us that he's going to fulfill these things. And they could not see how it would be possible that both would be true. Number one, that they could be destroyed, and number two, that God could still fulfill his covenants. And that was their mistake. The other rebuttal to that is that these were covenants that were conditioned on righteousness. They always were. And, um, okay, so number three, you may remember, it wasn't too many weeks ago, we're talking about the Assyrians besieging, laying siege to Jerusalem, specifically all, or all of Judah, but specifically Jerusalem. The Assyrians laid waste to most of Judah. So they carried away all of the northern kingdom of Israel captive. But they also conquered, I think it said in Isaiah, 40 cities, 40 walled cities in Judah as well. So the Assyrians had quite the run of the place. And when they arrived in Jerusalem, that was when uh, Isaiah said, no, they're not going to even fire one arrow at this place. And they never did. And the Jews took that, took such courage from that and the, the difference between, in their mind, the difference between Jerusalem and all the other cities was that that was where the temple was. But the fact is that what happened in that time was that Hezekiah, number one, righteous king, number two, consults the prophet Isaiah and asks, what should we do? Isaiah says, don't worry because God will protect us. God will fight for us. We've been righteous lately. You know, we've been repenting. You've been a good king and leading the people in righteousness and therefore God will fight our battles. Now, in this particular case, the, the word of God is the exact opposite. So the king, not a righteous king, Zedekiah, goes to Jeremiah, who's also the prophet of his time, and he says, what should we do? Jeremiah's advice is the exact opposite. Give up. Turn yourself over to the Babylonians. You remember we talked about this last week. He had this private audience with Zedekiah because uh, Zedekiah was afraid to speak to Jeremiah openly. And Jeremiah says, if you turn yourself over to the Babylonians, God will protect not only you, but the entire nation of Judah and the city of Jerusalem will not be destroyed. Well, everyone thought, well, no, Jerusalem can't be destroyed because look what God did for the people 100 years ago in 701 BC. And that just was a miracle that was for their time. It happened to suit their circumstances, but they weren't willing to listen to the living prophet. They were listening to a dead prophet. That was the problem they made there. Fourth, Jerusalem had very, very powerful fortifications. So uh, when the Assyrians, for example, laid siege to Jerusalem, they were they had a huge army and had those fortifications not been strong enough, they would have just marched right in. Number two, Hezekiah had the king at the time of Isaiah. He had prepared for these invading Assyrians by digging a tunnel where the water could come in under the city. So the Jews, and this these things still existed. So the Jews at the time, 100 years later, they thought, 
well, we've had all these preparations, this huge wall, we've got plenty of water, we can withstand a mighty siege, so it doesn't even matter if Babylon comes because they won't conquer us. Finally, uh, I shouldn't say finally, fifth, um, it hadn't been too many years during the time of Zedekiah. Uh, Zedekiah's father was Josiah, who was the last righteous king of Judah. And Josiah, if you remember, had found scriptures in the temple, and he and he and when he read them, he rent his garments, and he repented in sackcloth, sackcloth and ashes, and he called the entire nation to repentance, and everybody repented. And so, even though this had only been, say, 20 years, people were still feeling like, hey, why are we, why are you saying so many bad things about how we're acting? It wasn't so long ago that Josiah was our king, and he was great, you know, and, and God was really on our side then, so it can't be that much worse, right? So the fact that uh, there had been recently a righteous king made the Jews of Jeremiah's time, very complacent. And finally, and perhaps most tellingly, the, the final thing that made the Jews feel like they could ignore Jeremiah's advice were all these false prophets, the false predictions from false prophets. And they had all these assurances that there was going to be peace, and uh, Hananiah wasn't the only one. It's every prophet that was saying building himself up as a mouthpiece for, for Yahweh was saying, don't, you don't have to worry about the Babylonians, God's going to protect us. He was saying what Isaiah had said a hundred years before, except that he was saying it of himself and hadn't been revealed to him from God. So maybe that gives you a little bit more perspective as to why Laman and Lemuel were so resistant to Nephi and Lehi's ideas that Jerusalem would be destroyed. Um, It's just a fascinating article. I highly recommend it. You can find it if you search on Google, How Could Jerusalem, That Great City, Be Destroyed? And if you care to see the, the reference in the Book of Mormon, it's 1 Nephi chapter 17. And in verse 22, Laman and Lemuel are saying, not only, not only is Jerusalem a mighty city, but uh, the Jews themselves are righteous. So Laman and Lemuel had succumbed to all these ideas, all six of these ideas that we just talked about. Now, there's another uh, article that goes along the lines of uh, the theophany idea that we were talking about today and how Le- Lehi, Lehi's theophany fits so perfectly into this. And it's called Throne Theophany and Prophetic Commission in 1 Nephi by Blake Ostler, O-S-T-L-E-R. I recommend that one as well. Finally, there's a blog that I've been reading lately that's very helpful uh, in studying the Old Testament, and that is by a man named Ben Spackman. His blog is called Benjamin the Scribe. It's on patheos.com, so check that out. So in my opinion, that's the main idea of today's lesson, which is this the idea of a true prophet versus a false prophet, and the fact that a true prophet has a theophany, is called of God, and then there are sometimes ways that we don't have access to, or or there are sometimes ways to tell the difference, and sometimes we don't have access to all of those ways. Maybe the Holy Ghost isn't speaking to us that day. Maybe we're not humble enough. For whatever reason, we might fall for this. So it was, and it was doubly difficult for the ancient Jews who couldn't read, perhaps, uh, and for various other reasons, not very sophisticated religiously, it was doubly difficult for them to tell the difference and to discern. So uh, quite, a, quite an interesting idea. And then the question is, what are the things today that are difficult for us to discern? They had their challenges. Their challenge was literacy, most obviously. But also, did they have the gift of the Holy Ghost? Did they have the Melchizedek priesthood? We don't know. Uh, probably most of them did not. Um, so 
it's easy for us to look at the ancient Jews and say, well, uh, I can understand why, or I can't understand why, one or the other, why they couldn't tell the difference. But it takes a, another step for us to look at our own lives, our own day, and say, what are, who are the false prophets that we are following, and what are the difficulties that keep us from seeing the difference? Right? So we might think that, and we don't call them prophets, that's the hard part. There aren't too many people who are saying, I'm speaking for the God of the Old Testament, and I'm going to tell you to do the exact opposite from what the real prophet is telling you to do. Generally, people don't say they're prophets at all. So who are we taking? Who do, toward whom do we have the same attitude as the ancient Jews did towards Hananiah? That would be a, perhaps a better question for us. And then how can we tell the difference? How can we recognize that God is either on the side of the prophet or on the side of these influences that we are accepting into our lives? I think it's a very powerful and very worthwhile question. Well, in chapter nine, so let's, now we're talking more specifically again about Jeremiah. And let's finish off talking about his ministry. So in chapter 29, this is the, the, a copy of the a letter that Jeremiah sends to the Jews who have already been carried away by the Babylonians. Jeremiah is still in Jerusalem, but he sends the, the people in, in Babylon are his people, and he has to look over them. And he sends them a letter, and he says a few things. So in verse 5 of chapter 29, he, he tells them, you're going to be there a while. Now, later on uh, in verse 10, he'll say, it's going to be 70 years, you'll be there. But right away he says, don't think that you can just live a temporary life and, you know, it'll be a few months and you're coming home. Like Hananiah said, I know you've got false prophets there too. Don't pay attention to any of them. And he says two things in verse 5. He says, build buildings and plant plants, not, not just crops, but plant trees. So you're going to have time for your plans to come into maturity. And he goes on in the next few verses to talk about how you can uh, go ahead and get married, give your children away, have, let them have children of their own. You're going to have plenty of time. Not only that, but the cities of Babylon, you should pray for them to have peace because their peace will be your peace. So it's a very powerful message of uh, one, or, or let me put it this way. It's a non-intuitive message for the Jews. They wanted nothing more than to return to Jerusalem. They felt the separation from the temple very keenly, and especially, especially the kind of Jews who had been already carried away to Babylon. They were the ones who were the most observant and the most likely to rebel, and so they were the ones who probably would have felt the largest emotional ties to the temple. And, and Jeremiah is telling them, no, it's going to be a long time before you come back. Build and plant. So that's kind of the quote that among biblical scholars is given for this verse, build and plant. You're going to be there a while, so build and plant. And Jeremiah lets these exiled Jews know that there are false prophets even among them. It's not just in Jerusalem that this problem exists. Specifically, at the end of the chapter, he talks about a man named Shemaiah who has written a letter back to Jerusalem. And it gets a little difficult to understand at the end of this chapter because it's a double quotation when there's no quotation marks. But um, if you know that going in, it might be a little easy to, easier to uh, figure out. But uh, Shemaiah has written back to Jerusalem and said, why, have you, why are you still letting Jeremiah have his way of the place? You should, you should have imprisoned him by now because he's a false prophet. And Jeremiah is saying, uh, God is going to pronounce judgment on Shemaiah. And he gives, he, Jeremiah makes a prediction similarly to how he did with Hananiah. Uh, Jeremiah says what's going to happen to Shemaiah, and we can, we can presume that that came true. 
So finally, we get to chapter 31, and this is where the, the title of our lesson comes from, which is, I will write it in their hearts. And we'll talk about what, that, uh, what those words exactly mean at the, at the very end of our lesson today. But let's take this chapter sequentially. Now, you'll remember from the beginning of the lesson, chapter 16, God said, the days are coming when people aren't going to talk about the Exodus anymore. They're going to talk about the gathering because it's going to be a bigger miracle. And when we discussed chapter 23, I kind of left that out. But that, that language is repeated in chapter 23. And here in chapter 31, it's repeated again um, that, that there will be a great company that returns to Jerusalem from the north country. So this whole chapter is... Jeremiah being swept away, caught up in the glory of the, the days of the new Jerusalem. And in verse 11, this is, this is a powerful verse, I think, for, for Jews to understand God. So up until this point, Jeremiah has been talking about the gathering. And then in verse 11, Jeremiah says, The Lord hath redeemed Jacob and ransomed him from the hand of him that was stronger than he. So let's look at those words, redeemed and ransomed. If you remember, redeem in the law of Moses, if you were going to sacrifice an animal, for example, a donkey, when, when a donkey was born, you were called upon to sacrifice it, but you could redeem it by putting another animal in its place. And God is often called the redeemer in the Old Testament, but they didn't believe in a savior, an earthly savior. What they, the way they saw a redeemer was somebody who put a sacrifice in between them and, their, and the penalty of their sins. They didn't understand it would be God himself. And number two ransomed. So a ransom and a rescue and an atonement, these are all, um, these are all words that mean Savior. So when we see the words Redeemer and Savior in the Old Testament, we can, this is a verse that helps us understand what the Jews would have understood from those words. Um, when God is the Savior of Israel, what it means is that he brings Israel back from exile. And they didn't understand that that exile was not only literal, but also metaphorical. It meant that God brings them back from the exile they have from his presence. He redeems them not only from their literal exile, but from their second death, the, 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 the spiritual death, the exile of sin. So we know what those terms mean in a modern context, but I think it's helpful also to understand how the Jews would have taken this in their day. And then after verse 11, say verse 12 to the end, uh, these are visions of how wonderful the New Jerusalem would be. I I would recommend that you read all of it. I wish we had time. We'd just sit here and read it because these are uh, amazing prophecies of how things are going to be in the latter days when God finally says, uh, the world is now under my control. This is what we're all praying for, by the way. When Jesus taught uh, people how to pray, he said, thy kingdom come. That was how he began his prayer. So people, not only Christians, but Jews, have been praying for this f- since for thousands and thousands of years. Thy kingdom come. And so here's Jeremiah talking about what that means. When the kingdom comes, and, and Jesus is, probably the, the key word you would use to describe Jesus' early teachings was kingdom. He was talking about the kingdom is upon you, the kingdom is at hand. And uh, Jeremiah has a pretty detailed description of what that kingdom looks like. Now, I want to hearken back to one more idea from Exodus chapter 20, where the Ten Commandments are, and, uh, and we're going to skip forward to verses 29 and 30. We're still in Jeremiah chapter 31. You, re- you may remember, after delivering the Ten Commandments, God said, you know, thou shalt not do this, thou shalt not do that, for I am a jealous God that visiteth 
the heads, the, the sins of the fathers on the heads of the children to the third and fourth generation. I'm not reading, but, but I'm paraphrasing. Uh, to the third and fourth generations of them that hate me, saith the Lord. Now, this was an idea that took root in Jerusalem, and they would use this scripture as an excuse for them to commit sin. Like, I, I'm doing this because of my father's sins, on, my, on the heads of my father's be it, right? The, this is, or this, this penalty that's coming upon me is not because of my own choices, but because of my father's. And the, the saying, which we don't have a scriptural record of, except here where uh, Jeremiah is contradicting it, the saying was, the, the fathers will eat sour grapes, and the children's teeth will be set on edge. And I, I think this is such a wonderful metaphor. Uh, I've been, so if you, if you think about what it tastes like to eat a sour grape, if you've ever known anyone who's raised grapes, if you try to eat that grape too early, you will be eating uh, something that's really either sour or super bitter. Maybe there's a seed in there that hasn't shrunk enough uh, and to be soft, and your your teeth set on edge is a perfect description of the kind of grimace that people make when they eat a grape that's not ready. So imagine there are two people across the room, and one person picks up one of these grapes and puts it in his mouth and chomps into it, and then some, uh, somewhere across the room, somebody else makes this grimace and has a, has a bitter taste or a sour taste in their mouth from this, from this sour grape. And um, the point is that this saying, this idea, is directly related to fairness. And you don't encounter that concept too often in the Old Testament, the idea that life should be fair. But here is God alluding to it very specifically. He's saying, I know it's not fair. When the parents eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge, so the the children, but but that's the way the world is, right? So um, and for proof, we can once again go to the Book of Mormon. Early in the Book of Second Nephi, the first couple of chapters, Nephi is giving his patriarchal blessings to all of his descendants, and he gathers everyone. He gives them each a blessing, and he near the end he gathers Laman and Lemuel's children, and he tells them the same thing. He says. Uh, you know, I leave my blessing upon you, whatever blessing God has for you, whatever you can possibly get, I hope you get it. And let me tell you this, if you sin, uh, it won't be upon your heads. It'll be because your parents didn't teach you the right things. And then he goes to Lem- Lem- uh, Lemuel's children and says the same thing. The point is, because of the, of the choices of their fathers, those children of Laman and Lemuel, uh, you know, there was no child of Laman named Bob we don't have any record that, that Lehi said, Bob, you know, your dad was a, a wicked man, but you are so righteous, so you're going to be blessed with your uncle Nephi. There was, Laman didn't have any children like that. All of his children turned out to turn away from God, and it wasn't their fault. It was because their father taught them that they had been robbed, and they, hadn't, they really didn't have to leave Jerusalem, and they'd been carted halfway around the world against their will, and all these terrible things that didn't make any sense, and therefore the children of Laman and Lemuel became perpetual victims throughout their history, and they were always complaining that the children of Nephi had stolen from them their right to rule. And this is an example of what it means when the the sins of the fathers are visited upon the ch- on the heads of the children for three or four generations. And you can think of people in your own life, perhaps, who have made terrible choices and it has affected their children, for sure. I mean, all of us know somebody like that. And we don't have to look very far to see plenty of examples. 
So this passage is interesting for two reasons. Number one, God is admitting the world isn't fair. He's saying, uh, you know, I know that the world is set up so that children often are the ones who bear the brunt of their parents' choices. But here's God saying, it's not the way it should be. And in the final day, it won't be said anymore that the fathers eat sour grapes and the children's teeth will be set on edge. This is a, this is a very profound idea. It's not just for, parent, for children to escape the negative consequences of their parents' sins. Think about all the other things that have to be in place before that happens. If a, if a person sins, how can it help but affect everyone that loves them? And yet God is saying, there will come a time when my will will be so strong upon the face of the earth that if someone sins, it will be only upon their own head and no one else will have to bear the brunt of it. It means God will be firmly enthroned, not only in heaven, but on the earth itself, that the earth will be a just place, that heavenly justice will reign on the earth and there will be no unfairness. What a powerful promise that is. And it's uh, also, it's a powerful metaphor to used to convey it. Two very um, wonderful verses there. Now, finally, in verses 32 and 33, the final verses that we'll discuss. Well, actually, let's start in verse 31. Uh, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now, um, those of you who've been paying attention will also know that the word covenant and testament mean the same thing. I will make a new testament. It's uh, just an interesting side note. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. That should tell you what the Old Testament is about. It's centered around the Exodus. And God is saying, I'm going to make a new covenant one day. And the Old Covenant is the Exodus. uh, And the New Covenant will be something else. Let's find out what it is. Uh, which my covenant they break, although I was a husband to them, saith the Lord, but this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now, this is a restatement of a promise that has been made a few times. We've talked about it before. The idea that in the days of the new Jerusalem, the people themselves will be the law. The Torah, the law, God's law will be written on their hearts, and they will also, the the language has been used in Isaiah and other places, that they will be like a temple to themselves. So So this is a hearkening back to those earlier passages, and the idea is that God doesn't need a temple. If, if, he ha- if God has the right people and the people have the right attitude, God doesn't need a temple and he doesn't need scriptures. So the two things that the Jews uh, have identify with most emotionally and most dearly are the Torah and the temple of Solomon. And God is saying, those will be you. You will be the temple. You will be the law. Torah and law are the same word. You will be the law. You will be the temple. And what did the temple have inside it to make it uh, an official or, or authoritative dwelling place of the Almighty? It was his Shekinah, his presence, God's holy presence that Uh, came upon the temple like a cloud when uh, Solomon dedicated the temple and, and abode on the top of that temple for three days and followed the Israelites, followed the tabernacle of Moses through the wilderness. This, this presence of God, this Shekinah that dwells in the temple, it would, this is a promise when God says, I'm going to write it in your hearts. What he's saying is each of you will be a dwelling place for my presence, for my Shekinah. 
you will be a temple, you will be the scriptures yourselves. It's, it's also, uh, you'll remember we, we talked about the idea that the messenger is the message when we talked about the good news, the gospel. So you will be the gospel, you will be the, the message, you will be the, the Torah, the law, you will be the temple. To me, it's very reminiscent of our modern sacrament prayer, which is you keep the commandments so that God's spirit can be with you. In other words, if, if you have written the law on your hearts, then this presence of God can dwell within you and always be with you. It, it's fascinating. God, right when he's saying that he's, gonna, he's going to have a new covenant. So this, is, this whole chapter is very certainly about the days of the new Jerusalem. But in some sense, it's already being fulfilled in our day. And, and here's what I mean. When we take the sacrament, we are inviting the Spirit of God to be within us. We are saying, I want to write this word upon my heart, meaning I want to always remember him. And that's God's new covenant. It's his New Testament, and we remember it by taking the sacrament every week. So if you want to know how to bring about the, the new Jerusalem, here is an instruction manual in Jeremiah chapter 31. Write the law on your hearts, and as you keep your sacramental covenants, you will make the world exactly like the wonderful dwelling place that God describes in Jeremiah 31. God's plan has always been the same, and that is to bring us to be the kind of people that can live with him. And he is capable of accomplishing that work. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Lowe. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.